Will you turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, Genesis chapter 4, and we're going to look at a large passage in that chapter, so we want everybody to be able to see in the Bible where it's coming from. These guys have some Bibles as they make their way back. If you need one, get their attention, and they'll get one of those Bibles to you at Genesis 4, the very beginning of the Bible. An article in the Wall Street Journal detailed the making of a top ten song back in the late 70s called Deacon Blues. It's about a guy who dreams of being a famous saxophone player, but he never makes it. But the article was all about the details that went into composing and recording the song. And I was fascinated with all the intricacies and all that went into that. Now, I'm going to quote from the article, but I warn you ahead of time that it contains a good bit of music geek stuff. The two guys who make up the group, Steely Dan, said, We conceived of the tune as more of a big band arrangement, with different instrumental sections contributing a specific sound at different points. We developed Deacon Blues in layers. First came the rhythm tracks, then vocals, and finally horns. We'd handpick musicians for the sound we were looking for on each of our songs. We tended to go through quite a few musicians looking for the results we wanted. I transcribed the chords, one of them says, and built an arrangement for the rhythm section that was tight but left plenty of space for other layers, like horns and background vocals that I knew we would add later. The song has a famous guitar opening, an electric piano playing the exact same chords and voicings, plus the drummer's cymbal figures. To keep the song's rhythm section arrangement from, from sounding stiff, I added guitar ad-libs here and there to create contrast after the vocals were in place. They were there to frame the lead singer's voice. Once the rhythm track and vocals were set, horns were added to give the sound a dreamy, reedy sound. We brought in a saxophonist to write the arrangement. We told him we wanted the horns to have a tight, romantic Duke Ellington cloud feel. The saxophonist says they wanted to add four reeds, two trombones and a trumpet, but not a high note trumpet. I knew right away how I'd arrange the horns, adding ninths and elevenths and other jazz, jazz dissonances that were implied but not there. I have no idea what that means. I used a sound that mirrored an orchestral style. I wrote in these, quote, rubs, two notes close together in the middle register played by the tenor and baritone saxophones. This produced a really thick, reedy sound. A leader of the group says, when everything was recorded, the rhythm section, the horns, and the background vocals, we sat in the studio listening back and decided we needed a sax solo, someone to speak for the main character. We liked the sound of a tenor saxophonist who played in Johnny Carson's Tonight Show band, so we brought him in. The saxophone solo guy says, As I listened, I realized they were using jazz chord changes, not the block chords of rock. This gave me a solid base for improvisation. They go on to say the song's fade-out at the end was intentional. We used it to make the end feel like a dream fading off into the night. In summary, regarding the song, they say, It's the only time I remember mixing a record all day, and when the mix was done, feeling like I wanted to hear it over and over again. 
It was the comprehensive sound of the thing, the song itself, its character, the way the instruments sounded, and the way the tight horn arrangement fit in. And then they end with this. One thing we did right on Deacon Blues and all of our records, we never tried to accommodate the mass market. We worked for ourselves, and we still do. We worked for ourselves, and still do. Now, this is the 20th message in our series in the opening chapters of the first book of the Bible. Back in the 13th message, we looked at chapter 2 and verse 15, which says this. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And we noted at that time that the words to work it mean to serve and to take care is to obey. So that verse should read the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to serve and to obey. Or, as we noted then, to put it another way, the Lord God made the man for the purpose of and gave him the assignment to worship. Man and woman, humanity, was made to worship God. And in that message, we said that life is for worship. And work is for worship. Marriage is for worship. And the take-home truth that day was everything is for worship. So how did we get from there in which we were originally designed so that from him and through him and for him are all things. How did we get from there to the point that Steely Dan uses their amazing creativity, not for God, but for ourselves? Why is it that if humanity was originally made to have a mindset that says, as the Bible does, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, Do it all to the glory of God. Why then do most people love the glory for themselves and so few live intentionally for the honor of their creator? Why is that? How did we get from there to here? Today's passage in Genesis 4 answers those questions. We need to ask God to help us. And so let's bow and do that. Father, thank you for another Lord's Day to gather as your people and to open the bread of life, your word. Lord, we ask you to allow us to feast there and help us, Lord, to have an appetite for what you say that corrects the sinful thinking that we have all around us in what has become worldliness since the entrance of sin into your otherwise good world. Help us to leave, Lord, with lenses through which to better see ourselves your world, and most of all, you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, in the first two chapters of this opening book of the Bible, at the beginning of human history, you'll remember that all is in harmony. Everything is fully integrated together as it should be. God and man are in fellowship with one another. Man and man are in communion with one another. Man is in sync with his environment. But now with the entrance of sin in chapter 3 of Genesis, now things have to be separated out as to whether or not they are true or false. And so now as time moves on with the entrance of sin, 
There's not only the voice of the true and living God, but now we are going to be forced to ask ourselves, is this voice of a true or false God? Is the voice of this person that I'm communicating with one of friend or foe? Is this particular creature that I've encountered in God's originally good environment one that is friendly or dangerous? And now, beginning in chapter 4 of Genesis, with the the beginning, the development of culture and civilization, we have to separate out whether the expressions we see in culture are godly or worldly. Now, every week we have an outline for you in your program, and I encourage you to take that out now if you haven't already. We want to see from this passage a couple of major things. The first one is this, the world... The world seeks significance apart from God. The world seeks significance apart from God. And there are a few ways in which the world seeks that significance apart from God. The first is this. It seeks that significance in accomplishment. Accomplishment. The world seeks meaning, significance, apart from God. The first way that's done is through its accomplishments. Verse 17 of chapter 4. Cain made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city, and he named it after his son, Enoch. Now you'll remember Cain from the opening portion of chapter 4 that we saw last week. And you'll remember that Cain committed the first murder of his brother Abel. And now in verse 17, we're told that Cain made love to his wife and had a son of his own. Now, one of the questions that regularly comes up from those who are skeptics regarding the truth and accuracy of the Bible is the question, where did Cain get his wife? The answer to that has long been known, because if Adam is, in fact, the first man and Eve is, as chapter 3 and verse 20 says, the mother of all living, if both of those are true, if Adam and Eve are the first persons uh, on earth and she's the mother of all living, then it's only possible for their children to marry siblings. These are the only other people around. So the short answer to where did Cain get his wife is that he married he married a sister. And the Bible tells us that although the first three named children of Adam and Eve are male... We have Cain and Abel in chapter 4, and then toward the end of chapter 4 today, we'll see another Seth. But these are only the named children, not the only children of Adam and Eve. In fact, chapter 5 and verse 4 says, Adam had other sons and daughters. Sons and daughters. And it was not until 2,500 years later when God gave the law that the prohibition against sibling marriage was written. So why did God give that prohibition later and not at the very beginning? Well, practically, it's because it would be impossible to fill the earth and have procreation occur if all people have come from an original pair. And also, with the entrance of sin and the curse upon the environment. You remember in chapter 3, when God gave consequences Because of the sin of the first man and the woman, he said, cursed is the ground because of you. And the ground is now going to bring forth thorns and and make life extremely difficult for you. And so there's a curse upon the environment, the physical environment, including our bodies. And the curse includes death and all that leads to death and precedes it. 
And so now as a result of all of that, we pass along defective genes to our children. And when two siblings have children, there's a much higher chance, so high that in fact it's almost certain that defective genes will be passed to the children. But that wasn't true of Adam and Eve and their children immediately after them. Remember, God made Adam and Eve perfect. So Adam and Eve had no mutant genes. Their children would likewise have very few mutations. And so this problem would not arise as it does now until later when the gene pool became, as it were, more polluted over time. And so where did Cain get his wife? He married his sister. That's the only way that that could happen. So next time a skeptic uh, asks you that, then it's really a question about, do you believe that all of humanity came from uh, a single original pair? The Bible teaches that, as we've gone over in weeks past. There's scientific evidence to support that, but that's really what it comes down to, because if that is true, then it's impossible to say otherwise. And he names, does Cain, the son Enoch. Enoch means consecrated or dedicated. And so this is one who is consecrated or dedicated to someone or something. Now, in the case of Cain, we've seen his character at the beginning of chapter 4. So to whom is Cain dedicating or consecrating the son? It's not to God, but rather it's to Cain and to Cain's progeny. Cain named this city that he built after his son for his own self-glorification. And this leads then to a question. As civilization is now going to be started, civilization is going to be started by Cain and by, by Cain's family. And we're going to see that side by side in civilization, you're going to have the godly and you're going to have the wicked. Cain representing in his line the wicked. So how after sin, how does one find meaning and significance. Very early on, Cain, having been driven from God's presence because of his murder of his of his brother, he begins to look at for meaning and significance, but now not in a relationship with God, but rather in his accomplishments. And not only did Cain do that by building the city and dedicating it, consecrating it in effect to himself by naming it after his his son. But people have continued to do that to this very day. People worry that their time is running out. And so I have to make my mark now. How many of you worry about your time running out? And all of the things that you wanted to do and you haven't done. All of the things that you wanted to accomplish but you haven't done. We worry about our time running out. And if you're not related to God, now hear this. If you are not related to God through Jesus Christ, your time is truly running out. The Bible speaks in Psalm 49 of the worldly, the ungodly, those who do not have a relationship with God and how they have to build these monuments for themselves in order to find significance. It says this, all can see that the wise die. And that the foolish and the senseless also perish, leaving their wealth to others. Their tombs will remain their houses forever. Their dwellings for endless generations, though they had named lands after themselves. People, despite their wealth, do not endure. 
And yet, we put our hope in those things. We put our hope in those accomplishments. But hear this, friends. For those who have a relationship with the Lord, their time never runs out. And that's one reason that you rarely, if ever, find God's people naming monuments after themselves. Now, Bible colleges are not included in this. (laughs) Let him who has ears to hear. But you rarely, if ever in the Bible, find God's people naming monuments after themselves. And that's because the priority of the godly rather than the worldly is God and not themselves. And so you find, for example, Abraham. The Bible says, Abraham called that place the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Notice the focus is on God and not on Abraham. When Jacob wrestled with the Lord For an entire night. And the Bible says that he dedicated then an altar to the Lord. And then the Bible says Jacob called that place Bethel. Which means the house of God. That's why the psalmist reminds us. Because so many people look for significance in their accomplishments. And even those of us who are redeemed. And those of us who do have a relationship with God. Are tempted to forget that our accomplishments do not have to be made here. In the three score and ten that God gives us on this earth. But the truth is, we never, hear this, you never run out of time if you're God's child. And so that's why Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. It's in vain that people seek to preserve their significance and their meaning through their monuments and their accomplishments. And so I ask you, dear friend, are you worried about how much time you have to leave an impression? Let me give you a principle that I think we should biblically live by. We should concern ourselves only with those things we cannot do in heaven. We should concern ourselves now with accomplishing here only those things that we can't do in heaven. Now, as you sit there and you hear me say that, you're going... You know, I don't really think about heaven much. We should. The Bible talks about heaven a good bit. The reason it does is because the focus of God's people is not on earthly things, but on heavenly things. The focus of God's people is in our relationship with him. And so let me ask you, when you get to heaven, will you have time to travel? Uh, Yep, lots of it. You're like, boy, I haven't seen all these beautiful places. Are you kidding me? Do you understand what heaven And we don't, do we? We don't understand what heaven's going to be like. And because we don't understand what heaven's going to be like, we think we've got to get all this stuff now. I've got my bucket list. I've got to get all this stuff done. You know, friends, you're going to have a lot, a lot of time to travel. What about that dream home? <laughs> Anything you've got going is a shack compared to the dream home that God has prepared for his people. What about leisure? What about work? The truth of the matter is, in heaven we will work, but we will work with joy for the glory of the Lord. What about learning? You know, I've got to get that next degree. I've got to get that next degree, right? Okay, cool. I mean, I'm all for goals. Do that. 
But you'll have eternity to learn of what's most important and learn of the Lord. These are all things that we will have not just time, eternity to pursue. And yet we find ourselves running like rats in the race, trying to pursue the same thing that worldlings do. Well, then what is it that I won't be able to do in heaven that I can only do here? Let me summarize it this way. It's pursue the mission that God has given us in his world. You see, that mission will be done when we get to heaven. But God has given us time to pursue that mission now. And your focus and my focus and our priorities and our decisions all need to be made then around accomplishing that mission. It's the world that seeks significance apart from God. And it seeks that significance in accomplishment. But secondly, I say in your outline, it seeks it in creativity, creativity. Seeks it in creativity. Verse 18. To Enoch was born Irid. And Irid was the father of Methuselah. And Methuselah was the father of Methusael. And Methusael was the father of Lamech. Lamech married two women. One named Ada and the other Zillah. Ada gave birth to Jabal. He was the father of those who live in tents and raise livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Zillah also had a son, Tubal Cain, who forged all kinds of tools out of bronze and iron. Tubal Cain's sister was Naamah. Now, here's this listing of names most of which are insignificant for purposes of understanding the flow of the passage. But it is important that these names are here, and I'm convinced one reason that the author puts them here is to emphasize the historicity of what's taking place here. That is, that these are real people. And the stuff recorded in the opening chapters of Genesis really happened. It's historical events, and these are historical personages. And in fact, the listing of names and the cities that those names built was something that was common in Mesopotamian literature. And that shows the historicity of this pre-flood biblical account. We'll see Noah's flood in a few chapters in Genesis. So here you have a listing of people who not only are seeking to find significance in their accomplishments, the monuments that they leave for themselves, but now this gives a listing of the creativity of the line of Cain. This worldly line has all of this creativity. Now, how is that? How is it that these people who are apart from God are able to do all of these good things that are listed here? Notice all of them are good things. There's nothing listed here that's evil in itself. The making of music, the making of tools in order to construct things. The shepherding of of livestock. Well, here's how. The Bible teaches something called common grace, common grace. And what you read here in verses 18 to 22 is of the common grace of God, that is grace of God that is given commonly to all humanity. Common grace allows the creativity of image bearers to continue. And that's a good thing. But here's the problem. What is created is no longer done for the creator. And so what you see listed here now are these 
are these uh, accomplishments, are these expressions of creativity on the part of those who are apart from God. And because they are apart from God, what is done is done for themselves rather than the one who gave the gifts to do them in the first place. The presence of good products for selfish selfish ends then creates a dilemma for the Christian, the one who does have a relationship with God. The creation of good products, but for selfish ends, creates a dilemma for us living in the world. It's the problem of living in the world and yet at the same time not imbibing the world. And that problem that all Christians face, being in the world and not of it, starts here. Because those apart from God have begun to create their own world. They've begun to create their own civilization. They've begun to make their own monuments and produce their own accomplishments and exercise their own creativity, but always for their own ends. People then and now can do wonderful things, but they do it without regard to God and sometimes in direct defiance to God. So now, how do I live that way? How do you live that way? Because we've got musicians and artists and very creative, the creative class all around us. But worldly to the core. Worldly in their ends and for whom they do it. And yet we are bid to imbibe and to purchase and to participate and to go. How does a Christian live in a fallen world? Well, one, the start of that is for us to have a proper definition of what we mean by worldliness. And worldliness is not what many of us caught if we grew up in church and in a church where they cared about being holy. And thanks be to God, I had the opportunity to do that. I grew up Pentecostal, most of you know, but I grew up in what was called the holiness Pentecostal movement. And my family and our church cared about holiness. That's why they called it that, the holiness movement. Now, their idea of holiness, as I'm going to mention in a moment, was a bit skewed. But I thank God that they cared about the fact there is the world and there's the Christian and they're not the same thing. But the way I caught what was being taught was this. Worldliness is whatever worldlings do. Worldliness is whatever those who don't know Christ do. But that can't be the right definition. Because in chapter 4 of Genesis, you see these worldlings doing all of these good things. So the things that they're doing are not worldliness. Hear this. Worldliness is not just what sinful people do, because sinful people sometimes do good things. Worldliness can be defined this way. It's fallen values expressed in culture. Fallen values expressed in culture. So what that means then is you and I now are faced with the task of having to separate out from the good product that is produced. Where is the world? Where are the fallen values expressed in that? And I would suggest to you that it's not only in what is done, but how it's done and for what reason. Not just what is done, but how it's done. You see, if we want to judge artistry, creativity... Let's take music for a moment. What most of us will say is, if the words are okay, I'm good with it. And I would suggest to you that you can still have acceptable words done in an unacceptable way. 
in a worldly, fallen values kind of way. Look, I don't want to just pick on our country music types out there. If you're a country music type, you're, you can keep your identity anonymous. Or whatever your favorite thing is. But I'm telling you, whatever your favorite kind of music is, it's not just what's said, it's also how it's said and for what purpose. Is it said, is it sung, is it performed in a sensual way? That's a fallen value expressed in culture. So it's not only the words, but the form that matters and the lifestyle of the person who is being marketed and who you're promoting when you go say, that's my guy or that's my gal. So you can enjoy the product without promoting the producer as someone to emulate. Did you know that? And those who are wise do that. Now, let me just say to the artist class here. The first mention of that begins in Genesis chapter 4. And it begins in the ungodly line of Cain. But God made it for his good purpose. And God made the creativity that he has given to his image bearers to be used for the worship of the one who gave it. So let me say to you that those of you who fit into the artist class, the creative class, the musicians and the artists, we thank God for you. I thank God for the seven people who were up here doing music for us and helping us praise God. Those, don't they do a terrific job? A terrific job. Anthony, you're doing a terrific job leading that. And the others that are helping with that, leading us in the worship of God, that's using creativity for the purpose for which God gave it. I marvel at people like, I'm going to embarrass Jan Dale. Have you ever seen paintings that Jan has done? These are professional-grade paintings. Now, coming from a non-artist like me, that means nothing. But anyone can look at the things that Jan produces, and they're beautiful immediately. And so I'm promoting Jan to paint your next mural of, of you on the monument you create for you. <laughs> and you know what happens, friends, over and over, is that the world reverses the order of the giver and the gift. It's first the gift and then maybe the giver. But in the Bible, it is always, always the giver first and then the gift that he provides. And so what happens is people will say, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, I need to I need to worship God. So be grateful as you pursue your dream." Notice, as you pursue your dream, make sure you thank God. But whose dream is it? God's or yours? Or don't forget God as you go on your journey. Whose journey? Your journey. That's reversing the giver and the gift. That's God as an afterthought. That's Jesus sprinkled on top. Commentator Matthew Henry said that worldly things are the only things that carnal people set their hearts upon and are most ingenious and industrious about is evident. So it is with the impious race of cursed Cain. Here was a father of shepherds and a father of musicians, but not a father of the faithful. Here was one to teach in brass and iron, but not to teach the good knowledge of the Lord. Here were the devices on how to be rich and how to be mighty and how to be merry, but nothing about God. 
And we try to solve that by sprinkling Jesus on top. And friends, I'm telling you, Jesus is not to be sprinkled on top. He's to be the foundation, the center, and the end of all of our endeavors. Whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, you do it all to the glory of God. The world seeks significance apart from God in its accomplishments, in its creativity, and I say in your outline, in its indulgence. Indulgence. It seeks it in its indulgence. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, listen to me, wives of Lamech, hear my words. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for injuring me. If Cain is avenged seven times, then Lamech 77 times. Now here you see two forms of sinful indulgence. The first is this, that God's institution of marriage given in chapter 2. One man for one woman for one lifetime. Monogamy has now become bigamy. Lamech takes two wives. He indulges himself in taking into his own hands this institution that belongs to God and is for God. And he transform it now, transforms it now to be a bigamist institution. And the woman, the women that he chooses are evidence that he's exercising the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh because their names mean ornament or adornment in the case of Ada and shining in the case of Zillah. Friends, this is the way the world rolls. This is what those apart from God do. They live for their own appetites, for their own indulgences. And let me say that because we are still sinners, then that still tempts us even in the church The Bible warns of those who will even come into the church and have those same kinds of worldly appetites. Philippians chapter 3. Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. And so that's the world. And that's the way the world rolls. The world seeks significance apart from God. But I say secondly in your outline. God's people find significance in worship. God's people find significance in worship. Verse 25. Adam made love to his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth, saying, God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him. God's people find their significance in worship. Now, where do we see that here? I say in the outline that they worship God for what he does, for what he does. And the reason I say that is this. Adam and Eve have this child, and they name this child Seth. And the name Seth means appointed one, appointed one. And you notice Eve's word words here. She gave birth to a son, verse 25, and named him Seth because God has granted me this child in place of Abel. So Seth is the appointed one. He's been appointed to take the place of Abel. And when verse 25 says, God has granted me another child, the word that's translated child is the same Hebrew word translated seed in chapter 3 and verse 15. Now, do you remember chapter 3 and verse 15? God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between your seed and her seed. And now here is Eve saying that God has given me Seth, this appointed one, 
who is now the promised seed in order to bring about the one who will crush the serpent's head. You may remember Eve's delight at the beginning of chapter 4 and verse 1 when she said, I have received a man, not just a man, the man from the Lord, thinking that her first son Cain was the promised one of chapter 3 and verse 15. And yet Cain shows his character and their hope turns to Abel and yet he's killed by Cain. But here now in verse 25 is faith in God's promise that one will indeed come. And God was therefore given and and God therefore gave another son through whom the seed will be continued and ultimately the Messiah will come. And that's precisely what happens. It's through the line of Seth that the promised conqueror arrives. And you find millennia later, Jesus Christ coming on the scene. And in Luke chapter 3, here's what the Bible says. Jesus was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. And Joseph was the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi. And then it goes on and on and goes all the way back to the son of Enosh, who was the son of Seth, who was the son of Adam, who was the son of God. And so you have Jesus being traced all the way back through the line, the godly line of Seth, the seed through whom the conquering one would come. We worship, friends, God for what he does, and that's what you're seeing here. They're worshiping God for what he has done in providing this godly line and what he will do in the future. But let me just add this. We worship God for what he does, not just the good he does, but for the difficulty he chooses to bring as well. Do you remember Job said... The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so each circumstance that we find ourselves in is to be evaluated not on the basis of what that circumstance does for me, but in how I can see God's character displayed in that circumstance and how I can reflect God's character as I go through that circumstance. God's people find significance in worship, praising him for what he does. And then lastly, They worship God for who he is. Verse 26, Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh. And at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. The name Enosh means weak or faint. That's in contrast to the pomposity that we see in Cain's line. The line of Seth is humble. And when it says in verse 26 that at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord, call means to proclaim. At that time, people began to proclaim the name of the Lord. Now, how do I know that call means the word means proclaim? You find it used in other passages in your Bible. Exodus chapter 34 says the Lord passed in front of Moses proclaiming. And then the Lord says the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. That word proclaiming there is the same as call in chapter 4 and verse 26 of Genesis. And so against the backdrop of the worldliness in which the godly find themselves. Friends, what God has placed us here to do is shine light in darkness by proclaiming the Lord with our lips and with our lives. Men began to proclaim the Lord. In contrast to the ungodly line of Cain, now you have godly people living in the world, but not of the world. Let me conclude with the lyrics, some of the lyrics to that song I mentioned at the beginning, Deacon Blues. 
And we did all of that creative work, but we did it all for ourselves. And here's some of the lyrics. This brother is free. I'll be what I want to be. I'll learn to work the saxophone. I'll play just what I feel. Drink scotch whiskey all night long. And die behind the wheel. You know what, friends? That's the best the world can do. Why should the redeemed people of God imbibe the world? When that's all the world can provide. And God has placed you and me in the world to be a light in darkness. Acts chapter 14, the Bible says that the Lord has not left himself without a testimony. It is the testimony of us and our lives and the fact that we march to the beat of a different drummer. And that's why Peter said this. You are like living stones being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's who you are if you belong to Jesus. You're different. You're holy. You're sanctified. You're a holy priesthood. And that separation, that difference goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 4. Now here's what that means. We're going to pray and finish. It means, as I say in the take-home truth, we're in the world but not of the world. And it means practically for you and me that we have to analyze all of the things that the culture presents to us as to whether or not those things, those things in which we might, that we might like and want to engage, whether or not those things are godly or worldly. And remember, worldliness is fallen values expressed in the culture. Let's ask God to help us. Father, thank you again for this opportunity to look into your word, to be instructed thereby. Thank you, Lord, for recording for us the beginning of human history and showing us how history has gone off the rails. It is not as it was designed. That sin has so corrupted every piece of the world, every part of the world in which we live. And Lord, because it's the air that we breathe, because it's the only world that we have known, we so easily become accustomed to it. We dip our toes and then our feet and then our entire selves into the water and the cesspool of the world. But Lord, you have called us out. We are your church, the called out ones. We are to be different. And your word has instructed us on the differences and what they look like and how it's to be pursued. Help us, Lord, to take that seriously. Help us to analyze all of the things with which we are presented and all of those things that that tempt us and draw us and help us to each always ask ourselves, is this for God? Is this of God? Is this by God? Or is it from the world and through the world and for the world? Lord, help us to be people who gladly reject the world and follow Jesus. Help us to be people who know that our home is not here. That this is not the end for us. This is only the beginning for us in a transition to our ultimate home that will last forever. And all of the things that we want to do now will be able to imbibe in your presence forever. So Lord, help us to be people who think differently. And as a result, act differently. And as a result of that, bring glory to you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.